This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Uh, Come with me, please, to John's Gospel, chapter 10. John's Gospel, chapter 10. Uh, Jesus speaking here, reading from verse 17. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Therefore there was division among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And that was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I have said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I will give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God." Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross was unquestionably the most incredible, the most unique event in the history of all mankind. His birth was both natural and supernatural. Natural in that he was born of a woman, supernatural in that she was a virgin. His life was both natural and supernatural. Natural in that he was totally man. And he had to eat and sleep. And he wept and he walked and he talked and he grew tired and weary at times. But supernatural in that he was totally God completely and utterly God at the same time. His death 
was both natural and supernatural. Natural in that he died, he breathed his last, his heart stopped. <coughs> but supernatural in that, particularly that day on the cross, there were so many things that were supernatural that happened around the event of the cross. And here in John 10, 17, 18, uh, Jesus makes a very profound statement. In fact, it is so profound that if you read the context, you'll see that that was the reason why the Jews wanted to stone him. He said, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again. In other words, I have power over my own life. Nobody else could say that. We can't say that. We don't even know what tomorrow holds. We're thinking about tomorrow. We're planning about tomorrow. We're making announcements about tomorrow. But the reality is, none of us know what tomorrow holds. But thank God we know who holds tomorrow. But we, we don't know. We don't have the power of our lives in our own hands. It's in God's hands. So did Jesus literally have the power of his own life in his own hands? Let's prove the validity of Christ's words. Let's see if, in fact, uh, those words were true. Well, I believe they were. And I believe one of the evidences of that is that men could not take him before his appointed time. In John 10, 39, we read it again. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Why? Because it wasn't his time. But they tried. They sought again. And that's not the first time, but they sought again. In John chapter 7, Verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, sorry, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. My time has not yet come. In verse 30, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? And then down in verse uh, 40, the same chapter, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ came from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. You wonder why? Simply because it wasn't his time. In John 18, verse 
Now when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, and he did, and he and his disciples entered, and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Therefore Jesus, knowing that all things would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Such was in the power of those words of Jesus that they could not even stand upon their feet. Hallelujah. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them again, whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name is Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not, shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now you would have thought, wouldn't you not, that all of those soldiers, when Jesus said, I am he, and the power of God flattened them, would you not have thought that would have been enough to recognize who he really was? And that he was not to be messed with. But it is his time now. And because it was his time, he allowed them to take him bound to the priests. There's other scriptures in Luke 4 which we don't need to go into which will tell us basically the same thing. And so men could not take Jesus before his appointed time. Only then would he allow that to happen? I must try to explain just something. As we read through the, the scriptures at the beginning of the message, there is a, a portion there that says, you are gods. And Jesus said to them, does not the scripture say you are gods? And this has been a, a, a controversy over the years. What exactly does that mean? Well, let me tell you what that means. It's a quotation from Psalm 82, which is the psalm of Asaph. And the word for God's here in 82, verse 6, Psalm 82, 6, is Elohim. And Elohim is a word that is used for God. It's one of his names, Elohim. But it's also a word that is used for civil magistrates and judges and learned men of the law who were leaders. And the context to what Jesus is saying is that context. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, those to whom the word of God was entrusted to, those to whom were leaders in the land. And although they were, many of them were unrighteous men, yet in their offices as representatives of the one true righteous judge, then in that sense, they were also called Elohim, because they represented God in their capacity. 
The same word is used of judges in, in general in Exodus 21 and 6 and 22 and 8 and 9 and 28. Sometimes it's master, sometimes it's judge, sometimes it's magistrate, but Elohim, it means the same thing. And in Exodus 7 and 1, whenever God told Moses to go and confront Pharaoh, he said, See, I have made you a God, an Elohim to Pharaoh. I've made you a judge, not God, the God, but Elohim. I've made you a judge before Pharaoh. And so Jesus then is saying, basically, if earthly men are called gods, why can't I call myself God since I have been sanctified by the Father and sent into this world? All right? Does that clear that up? may not be a controversy to you, but believe me, it's been a controversy in certain sections of the church over the years. So first of all, did Jesus have the power over his own life? Absolutely. No man could take him before his time had come. Secondly, he was in full control of all his faculties on the cross. In Matthew 26, 46, it says, he cried out with a loud voice, in spite of the pain, in spite of the weariness, in spite of the fact that he had been up all night, arrested the night before, and had went through several mock trials, and had been beaten, and whipped, and scourged, and spat upon, and his beard plucked out, and a crown of thorns pressed on his head. In spite of all of that, even in the torture of the cross, he still was able to speak out and cry out with a loud, clear voice. He was in full control of his faculties. He was able to speak to the thief beside him and have a full conversation about what was going to happen to him. Today you will be with me in paradise. He was able to look down at Mary, his mother, and say, Behold your son, and say to John, Behold your mother. So he was in full control of his faculties. In John 19, 28 to 30, this is what it says. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Tetelestai. The transaction is complete. It's done. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, Jesus in Matthew 27, 34, had already refused sour wine and gall, mixed with gall. Gall was something that would deaden the pain, that would deaden the senses to the horror of the cross. But he refused that. He wanted to be fully in his senses. He, wanted to, he didn't want his mind foggy, even though it meant much more pain. But he wanted to be in full control of his faculties on the cross. Psalm 69, 21 and Psalm 22, 15 talks about that event. That event. Now, Dr. Peter Stoner, a Christian mathematician, he said about one time to try to show the odds regarding prophecy coming to pass. 
And he took scriptures in Ezekiel uh, 26 regarding the city of Tyre. And there's a, a tremendous prophecy in Ezekiel 26 regarding the city, the great city of Tyre. And it was in seven parts. There were seven elements to the prophecy. And in fact, it took place over a couple of hundred years. But those seven elements had to be fulfilled totally in their entirety to the exact letter of the words. And Stoner said, the mathematician said, for that to happen just by sheer luck, by sheer chance, it would be 70,000 to one for that to happen. By the way, it happened exactly as was prophesied by Ezekiel. Exactly. Right. You can read the very words and they're exactly what happened. 70,000 to one. Now listen. In one day, in one single day, Jesus and the events around the cross fulfilled 33 prophecies in one day. Many, many more prophecies regarding Christ, but just in the events of the cross, one day, 33 prophecies. What do you think the odds of that would be? They're astronomical. I couldn't even give you the figure for it. Add as many knots on as you want. Incredible. You know, things like the betrayer, the amount of money he would be betrayed for, and what would happen to the betrayer, and what would happen to the betrayer's money. All of these things were prophesied. The scourging, the whipping, the mocking, the name-calling, the fact that he would die on a tree which wasn't the Jewish form of death, which was stoning There's just so many things. Read Psalm 22, the great messianic psalm. So many prophecies in that one psalm fulfilled on the cross. They parted my garments. He was pierced, Isaiah 53, 700 years before Christ came to this earth. Isaiah prophesied that he would be pierced. Isn't it amazing the little piece of bread that Jews use for their Passover ceremony, the matzo bread, it's like a cream cracker. It's pierced. Have you ever seen it? It's pierced. And yet they can't see that it's speaking of the body of Christ. And so every single prophecy about Jesus in that one day was fulfilled exactly and precisely right to the letter. 33 of them in one day. What more evidence does somebody need that he was who he said he was? He had power over his own life. And he gave up his life for us. He said that, I give my life. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up. Yes, technically, his life was taken. The Romans nailed him to a cross. But there would have been no taking of his life if he had not have given his life. Did he not say something about that to Pilate? When Pilate says, do you not know I have the power to crucify you? (coughs) And Jesus said, you would have no power at all over me except it was given you. (laughs) And Pilate legally had the power of the sword. He could put anybody to death. 
But Jesus said, you can't put me to death except it's been allowed. He gave up his life. I was watching a, a program recently about the Inuit people, the Eskimos, and how living in the Arctic Circle and hunting, and I watched them as they hunted this moose. They eventually killed the moose. There's nothing wrong with that because they were using it for food. But it was after they killed the moose, they, they all got down and they patted the dead moose. And they said, thank you for giving your life for me and my family to eat. And I thought, no, he didn't give you his life. You took his life. He tried everything he could not to be taken. <laughs> he ran as fast as he could. But Jesus gave his life. Technically, it was taken, but he had to give it. Jesus had to submit himself unto death because death had no hold over him. It's got a hold over us. We'll all die one day, but not Jesus. It had no hold over him. He had to give himself to it. He had to lay down his life. He had to submit himself to death. And he did it. As Paul said, even the death of the cross. That's why he said in John 10, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. In John 19.30, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Luke 23.46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, the King James says he gave up the spirit. New King James that I normally, I'm using today says he breathed his last, but it just misses the nuance that he gave up the spirit. You remember Acts 7, Stephen, the first uh, Christian martyr, when Stephen was being stoned, remember what he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He didn't say, Lord Jesus, I give up my spirit. He said, receive my spirit. And there's a big difference, isn't there? There's a big difference. His legs didn't need to be broken as he was already dead. Now that was unusual. Crucifixion was an unbelievably cruel death, and it was particularly designed to be as long and as cruel as death as possible, depending on the strength of the individual. So only to last for six hours was unusual, to say the least. Normally, at least be 24 hours, 48 hours, maybe even longer. They would let you hang up there till the birds picked out your eyes. Literally. But because the Sabbath was coming, the Jews sought Pilate that they may break the prisoners' legs. They didn't want them hanging up there during the Sabbath. It would <laughs> spoil their Sabbath. And so he gave the order, and they came along, the soldiers, and they broke the legs of the two thieves. Because that mean then they, they could not longer push themselves up to breathe, and they would just be asphyxiated. <coughs> 
But when they came to Jesus, they were surprised because he was ready death in just six hours. He didn't need to suffer any longer. He didn't need to hang on that cross any longer. He has fulfilled everything the Father asked him to do. It is finished. And he died. And so his legs were not broken. Another prophecy fulfilled that not one bone of his body shall be broken. <laughs> one of the 33. The veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom. The earth quaked. The rocks were rent. The sun refused to shine from, <laughs> from 12 midday to 3 in the afternoon. Three hours. That was not an eclipse. Eclipse lasts minutes. Maybe three minutes, not three hours. And darkness fell upon the land. No wonder the Roman centurion said, truly this was the Son of God. He had never seen anything like that. He had officiated so many crucifixions, but this was different. The earth shook from below his feet. And the big hands of God tore that veil from top to bottom. They say the veil was as wide as the palm of a man's hand. Not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom, signifying that God had torn it. And people walked out of their graves. Supernatural. All this speaks of how Christ died. But the bigger question is why did Christ die? Why did he die? He died that we might be forgiven. He died that we may be reconciled to God. What a Savior. What a Lord and Master. Could not God have just forgiven man? Why did he have to go through that horrible, cruel death on the cross? Could he not have just lived here for 33 years and then just be taken up and God says, that's it, you've done enough. Now I will forgive every man. No. Why? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because all of this is sinned and because the wages of sin is death and because we could not pay the penalty, only one could come and pay the penalty. But the penalty was death. And we know reading through the Old Testament, all those types of animals shedding their blood being shed was a type of the one who was to come, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he had to go to that cross. And he is the only one could go to the cross. He was the only one whose blood was worthy to cleanse our sins. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, Paul said. <coughs> Peter said, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's just the one. And we need it, the forgiveness of God. 
Forgiveness is a wonderful thing. We would not be sitting here today without the forgiveness of God. Masuo Fushida, commander of the Japanese Air Force, led the squadron of 80, 860 planes that attacked Pearl Harbor on December the 7th, 1941. American bomber Jacob DeShazer was eager to strike back, and the following April the 18th, he flew his B-52 bomber called the Bat Out of Hell on a dangerous raid over Japan. And after dropping his bombs on Nagoya, DeShazer lost his way in a heavy fog and was ejected as his plane ran out of fuel. He was taken prisoner, tortured by the Japanese, threatened with imminent death, for almost two years, DeShazer suffered hunger, cold, and dysentery. In May 1944, he was given a Bible. You can keep it for three weeks, said the guard. DeShazer grabbed it and clutched it to his chest and started reading in Genesis. And scarcely sleeping, he read the Bible through several times, memorizing key passages. And on June the 8th, after reading Romans 10 and 9, if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jacob prayed to receive Jesus Christ as a Savior. And immediately Matthew 5, 44 became a critical text for Deshazer about forgiveness. As he determined to treat his Japanese guards differently, his hostility towards them evaporated, and every morning he greeted them warmly. He prayed for them and sought to witness to them. He noticed their attitude towards him also changed. And they would often slip him food or supplies. After the war, DeShazer returned to Japan as a missionary. Copies of his testimony, I was a prisoner of the Japanese, flooded the country. Thousands wanted to see the man who could love and forgive his enemies. DeShazer settled down to establish a church in Nagoya, the city that he had bombed. And one armed man in particular, deeply affected by DeShazer's testimony, was led to Christ by Glenn Wagner of the Pocket Testament League. And shortly afterwards, that man paid a visit to Jacob DeShazer at his home, and the two became dear friends and brothers. It was Mitsuo Fashida who had led the Pearl Harbor attack. As DeShazer served as a missionary in Japan, Mashida became a powerful evangelist preaching throughout Japan and around the world. Such is the power of forgiveness and reconciliation because Christ died on the cross for us. It's one of the greatest themes in the Bible. It's the very heart of the gospel message that we preach. Man is by his very nature a sinner. We have a bias to do the wrong. Leave any man to his own devices and he will sin. <laughs> Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all who can know it? So the need for forgiveness is universal. That is why the gospel has to be preached to every nation. Luke 24, he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That repentance and remission, the two go together. So see just in a moment. 
Society doesn't understand forgiveness very well. We rarely see it from God's standpoint. Rarely. People don't seem to know when to forgive, how to forgive, and whom to forgive. Forgiveness is an equally big problem to believers. Do you find it easy to forgive? Do you? Be honest. Not easy sometimes, is it? Sometimes it can be very, very hard, actually. And all too often we find it hard to come to grips with. In John 3, man stands condemned before a holy God. He's broken God's laws again and again. He's guilty, responsible, accountable. But the price is too great and only one can pay that awful price. Only one sin can be atoned for by one man, the Lord Jesus. No other sacrifice will blot out man's sins. Augustus Toplady, who wrote the famous hymn, Rock of Ages, says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Hmm. Paul writes to Timothy in Timothy 1. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus was called the friend of tax collectors and sinners. It was meant as a slight, as a slander. But Jesus took it as a compliment. A friend of sinners and tax collectors. Luke 19 and 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The gospel offers pardon, forgiveness, cleansing. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power, top lady said. Planet may wash his hands, but he can never wash away the guilt of his soul. King David for a whole year suffered because of his sin until the prophet came and says, you are the man. When you read Psalm 51, you'll see the penitent psalm, how David poured out of his heart in repentance and true repentance. C.S. Lewis said, forgiveness is such a lovely thing until you have something to forgive. <laughs> Isn't it? How hard do we find it? Do we have the right to forgive everybody, everything? Should we forgive everybody, everything? Does God forgive everybody, everything? The answer is he doesn't, unless repentance. Repentance and remission of sins. There has to be repentance. So he's saying, should we not forgive? Absolutely we should forgive. Over and over again the scriptures tell us to forgive. For there's some things we can't forgive. Only God can forgive 
and he doesn't forgive because there's no repentance. But we must guard against resentment and anger and bitterness. That's what we have to guard against. He says that's destructive to our spirit and even our physical bodies it will begin to affect. Now we must pursue every opportunity that we can to forgive, but there's some occasions and there's some things that even God's not forgiving because there's been no repentance, let alone remorse. In Matthew chapter 6, Nine to fifteen. You can read that a little bit later. Mark chapter eleven. Jesus talks about faith. And if you read on in Mark chapter eleven, you'll see that he says, If you stand praying, if you have anything against anybody, forgive them. And the implication is that unforgiveness will affect our very faith. Lots and lots of scriptures about forgiveness and the lack of it. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. Christ forgave us, we repented. We held up our hands and said, Sorry, Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. But your mercy and your grace has forgiven me. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing when you're forgiven. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. William Arthur Ward said, we're most like beasts when we kill, we're most like men when we judge, but we're most like God when we forgive. John 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, you see, there's teaching going around today, believe it or not, that you no longer have to confess your sins. That grace is so powerful that once you're saved, you no longer have to confess your sins. John writing to Christians, to the church, to my little children as he calls them. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <laughs> what does what we call the Lord's Prayer say? Forgive us our trespasses. Well, if we don't have to confess them, why did Jesus said we should say, pray, forgive us our trespasses? Of course we do. That's some of the crazy teaching that's going about in the body of Christ today. Don't get me started. Psalm 134, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Daniel 9, 9, to the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Micah 7, 18, last verse. Who is like, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? Thank you, Lord. What a Savior. Amen. 
What a master. What a Lord that we serve today. He forgives us all of our iniquities. Cleanses us, wipes the slate clean, gives us a chance to start life all over again. And if anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Glory to God. How can you lose with that? Amen. As long as we're willing and humbled to come before him and say, Lord, I messed up. I sinned. I got it wrong. Please forgive me. And in his mercy and love, he'll do just that. He loves to pardon iniquity. <laughs> Glory to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his life on earth. We thank you for all that he went through for us for the price that he paid on that cross for us, for the death that he died for us, that he rose again from the dead for us, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father today where he ever lives to make intercession for us. Lord, we bless you for this. Thank you for the life that you gave. And thank you for the life that we have received from you. And so we give you thanks for all of your mercies today. What a good God you are to your children. And Lord, we want men and women and boys and girls to know your Son, our Savior. We want them to come to the cross and be saved and born again of your Spirit. So help us, Lord, to reach out. Lord, we all have family. We have loved ones. We have neighbors. We have friends, acquaintances, work colleagues all needing this wonderful Savior. So help us, Lord, by your grace to reach out and to touch lives for Jesus' sake. So we give you thanks today in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.